welcome everyone. It feels like a very festive, very special occasion. So let me welcome everyone in the hall tonight and everyone in Radio Land. Uh, the way I always do by quoting my guru, Swami Muktananda, who began every talk by saying in Hindi, Sabko Barisanmane Kesat Premse Ardik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that is the essence of spirituality, to welcome another person with great love. In that spirit, I want to welcome you. And satsang, as uh, Lilavati was saying, is uh, very special, very sacred, uh, and indispensable in my estimation. And it's the connection with the great teaching, the hidden teaching, the teaching that the sages have passed on to humanity, and humanity tends to ignore. But it's there bubbling beneath the surface. And by celebrating the great sages, uh, we celebrate that level of understanding that the Vedas incorporate, that the Upanishads incorporate, that all the great sages of all traditions uh, represent and that lives within every one of us. And so uh, I always honor those, those sages and the, the great teachings because it means uh, a potential, uh, it indicates a potential within every one of us. And in the hustle bustle and hurly burly of life, it's very easy to lose sight of that potential. First of all, it's very easy not to ever hear about this potential because it's not very understood uh, in our culture, in our time. However, once you learn about it and you come in contact with it and the spiritual uh, understanding and spiritual desire grows in you, even then it's easy to lose touch with it. Very important not to let that happen. So we come together and we celebrate that possibility. And uh, of course I celebrate my guru, Baba Muktananda, and we do many programs uh, from his teachings. And we also celebrate my guru's guru, Bhagwan Nityananda, and we do many uh, uh, programs from his teachings. Uh, but I also celebrate all the great sages. And one of my favorite ones, uh, one whose teaching I came in touch with before I, uh, before I ever heard of Baba, uh, was this fellow, that's him as a young man. His name is Sri Ramana Maharshi. This is him uh, as a young man of about 20 here. Uh, just a few years before that, he was an ordinary schoolboy in South India. And then at the age of 16, he had the most extraordinary uh, experience in which in a half hour, he became established in the self and his whole life changed but radically, and in short order, he left home uh, and he went into a trance which lasted several years. He was, at that point, at the feet, at the, the foot of the holy mountain, Arunachala, in South India. And in India, they understood that he was some kind of great young yogi, yogi uh, who was having spiritual experiences. And when he came out of that trance, uh, he started discussing 
his experiences. He started to read the scriptures and started to expand it. And for the next uh, 60, 50 or 60 years, uh, he lived in that same place and gave his teachings. Uh, let's see him in later life. His teaching never changed. No? <clears throat> He's looking very young. <clears throat> anyway, he lived uh, in Arunachala. He was born around 1880, and he died around 1950. And uh, so the majority of his life, he lived on that mountain, and he taught people the path of self-inquiry. Who am I? There he is. This is towards the end of his life. We have some photos we haven't seen before tonight. We have another one? Ah. There he is sitting uh, uh, in his chair. Many people come and sit in front of him, meditate with him because his meditative power was so powerful, so strong. <clears throat> now, uh, in recent years, I discovered a charming book by one of his devotees and her name was Suri Nagama. Um, that picture of Suri? There she is. This is in, isn't <laughs> she adorable? This is in later years in the ashram. And Suri Nagama has an extraordinary story. She was born uh, in South India uh, in 1902. Uh, and her father died when she was 10. At 11, she got married. This was normal for that culture. And uh, <clears throat> my note says that child marriage became illegal in India in 1929, so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, but anyway, she was married at 11, and a year later, her husband suddenly died of smallpox. So at the age of 12, she was left a lifelong widow, um, which uh, she, it wasn't so horrible for her because she became interested in spirituality and she became immersed in listening to religious discourse and singing kirtan. Uh, now, of course, in her, in her class of life, in her village, women were not educated, but she was very determined. She learned to read and write through her own efforts uh, and she became overwhelmed with the desire to meet a great guru and to live there with him and serve him. Uh, <clears throat> but it took a long time. She would weep with longing. Uh, and she lived with her brother, who was a lawyer. Uh, and the brother eventually, in around 1940, visited the famous sage, Sri Ramana Maharshi. And he thought, this is a great place for my sister. And so in 1941, she went to visit and uh, basically spent the rest of her life till 1980. She outlived Ramana and she lived uh, in the ashram all that time. During her stay, what's of interest to us, it's a beautiful story, but what's of interest to us is that she wrote wonderful uh, and long and literate letters to her brother about what was going on with Ramana. And these letters are my, now, my, at the moment, my favorite window into life with Sri Ramana. You know, some sages have great chroniclers. 
like Sri Ramakrishna had uh, Mahendranath Gupta, known as M, uh, who became, who wrote down beautifully and described the satsangs around Ramakrishna, and uh, you know it's very valuable. They didn't have uh, videos and all this kind of reporting then. Uh, and Suri Nagama, uh, is, we have to be thankful to. And of course, uh, Bhagwan Nityananda, uh, what's her name? The, uh, Tulsiyama. Hmm? Tulsiyama, of course. Well, wrote down all his sayings. And so Suri Nagama has given us a great picture of uh, Ramana. So these are a few uh, incidents and vignettes. If, you know, if you read most of the texts on Ramana, <laughs> he emerges as a, a kind of a dry intellectual who taught, only beat one horse to death. Who am I? And you know, meditate on that. Uh, and my feeling is even that teaching was misunderstood by most people, much simpler and more direct than that. But when you hear Suri Nagama, you, you get a sense of his humanity as well. Anyway, here we go. This is um, in January 1949, about a year before he died. At 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon, two pilgrims came and sat in Bhagwan's presence. Of course, we call Bhagwan Nityananda Bhagwan, so they called Ramana Bhagwan. <clears throat> it was clear from their attitude that they were thinking of asking something. After a while, one of them said, Swami, it's all right when we sit for meditation with closed eyes, but if we keep them open, the outer senses give trouble. What should we do? So, you know, I said, well, meditate with your eyes closed then. It's all right. But anyway, he said, Bhagavan says, even if the eyes are kept open, it is enough if we make the mind sleep. It is like sleeping in a house while keeping the windows open. Very appropriate for tonight, since we have to keep a lot of ventilation these days. So, <clears throat> but I think that's a great dharana. It's okay, you can meditate with your eyes open if you make the mind sleep. So let's try that for a second. You know how it is when you go to sleep at night? What do you exactly do? You go, you close your eyes, and you kind of turn off in some way, don't you? If you're lucky. If you know how to do it, we should, after all this experience, we should know how to do it. That many people say, I can't, couldn't sleep last night, I have trouble sleeping. But we know what to do. So try doing that with your eyes open now. With your eyes open, look at the far wall. Don't look at anybody like me. <laughs> and, uh, and just uh, fall asleep with your eyes open. See if you can do that. Hint, you won't be able to actually fall asleep. Just try what you do to fall asleep. Okay, let's do that. Okay, how do you go with that? Interesting. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> anyway, the devotee says, 
That means the mind should be kept away from worldly affairs. However, mu however much we try, we're not able thus to control the mind. That's a speech of the day, meaning I'm not able to, to control my mind. That's what he's saying. Bhagavan says, yes, that is true. That is why it's said that when a child tries to catch its own shadow by running after it and weeps when unable to do so, the mother comes and prevents him from running. So also the mind should be prevented from running away. <clears throat> the mind should be prevented from running away. <clears throat> Devotee, by what method can that be prevented? And Ramana says, the mind should be held by hearing and meditating on the saying of the sages and thereby prevented from going astray. Keep the mind focused on the teachings of the sages. In classical uh, Vedanta, they talk about listening to the teaching and then thinking about the teaching and then meditating on the teaching. And Gurdjieff called it thinking from the work. It means always keep the highest understanding somewhere in your mind. Let it focus on that. <clears throat> Devotee, that, must, that means you must give up worldly pleasures and catch hold of the bliss of the self. Is that so? And Ramana says, Ananda, supreme bliss, always exists. It is only the unhealth, unhealthy obsession with worldly things that has to be given up. If that is given up, what remains is only bliss. That which is, is the self. Where is the question of catching that which is? That is one's own nature, swabhav. That is one's own nature. So it's actually a matter of just focusing on the self. It's not giving something up, it's just focusing on the self. Devotee. Uh, if it is said that Ananda is the self itself, then who is it that experiences it? Very uh, kind of intellectual questions, aren't they? Uh, Bhagwan says, what is, is Ananda. That is the self. Ananda is bliss. As long as one has the feeling that the self is different from oneself, there will be one who inquires and experiences. But when one realizes the self when we realize the self, there will be no separate experiencer. <clears throat> Who is there to ask? Who is there to say? In common parlance, however, we shall have to say that bliss is the self or is our real nature. <clears throat> Devotee, that is all right, Swami, but however much we try, this mind does not get under control and hides itself so it's not perceptible to us. What is to be done? So no matter what Ramana says to him, he complains. I think this was Ramana's fate. It seems like in all the dialogues I read, it, he says something very simple and devotee can't understand it and they, and they uh, complain about it. So he finally says, Ramana with a smile, placed his little finger over his eye and said, look, this little finger covers the eye and prevents the whole world from being seen. In the same way, this small mind covers the whole universe and prevents Brahman from being seen. 
See how powerful it is. <laughs> Just like your little finger covers your eye, so your mind prevents you from knowing Brahman. It stands in the way of knowing the absolute, knowing the self. So quiet the mind and the self will shine forth. It's a great analogy. <clears throat> no one, ready? 1948, April. <clears throat> this morning, a Tamil youth, South India, approached Bhagavan and asked, Swami, is it good to love God or is not? Is it not? Then why not follow the path of love? <laughs> Ramana, who said you couldn't follow it? You can do so. But when you talk of love, there is duality, is there not? The person who loves and the entity called God who is loved. The individual is not separate from God. Hence, love means one has love towards one's own self. <clears throat> For this, loving one's own self, examples have been given in the Vasudeva Mananam, stage by stage. This is quoting a, a scripture, not very well-known scripture, probably known in the South, um, but it's very curious teaching that comes now. This is, Ramana's quoting this scripture, okay? It says, man loves money most, but he loves his son more than money, <laughs> his own body more than his son, his senses more than his body, the eye most among the senses, life more than the eye, and the self more than life. <laughs> Curious? He goes on. This is exemplified thus, as it's explained. Uh, if the son does something I should give a trigger alert. This is a little bit, <laughs> a little bit hairy teaching. We don't want anyone to be triggered. Uh, he says, um, this exemplifies us. If the son does something untoward and the government decides to punish him for it, the parents offer money and then bribes to set him free. <laughs> Hence, the love towards the son is more than money. If, however, the government does not accept money but says that they will let off the son if the father agrees to undergo the punishment himself, instead then the father will say, do whatever you like with the boy. <laughs> I have nothing to do with him. <laughs> Hence the father loves his own body more than his son. If a man does something for which the powers that be say his eyes must be plucked out, he tries to save his eyes by agreeing to bodily torture. So this is so uncharacteristically Ramana. So bodily torture is preferred uh, to loss of an organ. <laughs> if, however, they decide to take his life by beheading him, he'd be prepared to lose his eyes <laughs> or any other organ rather than his life. So life, prana, is loved more than organs. In the same manner, a person who desires to have atma anandam, the bliss of the self, will be prepared to lose his life even if necessary. So the self is loved more than life. <clears throat> Hence, a person loves God only with the view to being happy himself. He is, however, the embodiment of happiness 
and that happiness is God. Who else is to be loved? Love itself is God, said Bhagwan. You follow that chain of reasoning? I'm not sure. And, that, and uh, the questioner said, that's why I'm asking you whether God should be worshipped through the path of love. And Ramana says, that is exactly what I've been saying. Love itself is the actual form of God. Love itself is the form of God. So let's do that. That's a good dharana also. Love, is, so take the word love, the thought of love, the feeling of love, the association of love, however you approach it, and bring it in as much as you can and recognize that that is the form of God. Just a moment, bring those two things together. Right now, let's do that for just 30 seconds. Okay, good one, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> he says, if by saying, I do not love this, I do not love that, you reject all things, that which remains is swarupa, that is the self. That is pure bliss. So he's saying the Vedantic path of not this, not this. Get rid of objects, and what's left at the end is the self. Call it pure bliss, God, Atma, self, or what you will. That is devotion, that is realization, and that is everything, said Bhagwan. And now, since that brings up the question of Brahman and Vedanta, uh, there's one on that. How are we doing? Doing good? I have this one on, on Vedanta, and then a very charming one that you will love. <coughs> So this is the medicine, then we get the, the uh, sweet, sweets. Right, so Shankaracharya, who uh, is associated with Advaita uh, Vedanta uh, about a thousand years ago, uh, he summed up the, the whole teaching uh, of Vedanta in what he said, half a verse. Brahman Satyam Jagan Mitya Jivo Brahmeva Naparaha. Brahman Satyam. Brahman is real. Brahman is the truth. The absolute is the truth. Jivan Jagan Mitya. The world is an illusion. Brahman is the truth. The world, the material world that you see physically, is an illusion. And Jiva, the, your individual soul, is Brahmeva Naparaha. Jiva is nothing but Brahman. So you are actually Brahman. Brahman is real, the world's an illusion, and you are Brahman. That's the whole teaching of Vedanta in Shankaracharya's uh, statement. But he has a bit of a twist on here. Because uh, <clears throat> Ramana was a great being and was not focused only on one method. He, he transcended all methods. So, uh, Okay, this one. Some time ago, Nagama writes, uh, some time ago a new arrival to the ashram asked 
Bhagavan something in English, which I could not follow, being ignorant of the language. But Bhagavan replied in Tamil, and I give below his reply to the extent that I'm able to grasp it. Bhagavan said, it is said that Brahman is real and the world is an illusion. Again, it is said that the whole universe is an image of Brahman. The question arises, how are these two statements to be reconciled? So what do you have? You have Vedanta saying the world is unreal and only Brahman is real. And then it's really Kashmir Shaivism, which says all this is God. So it's contrasting these two disciplines, the point of view of Vedanta and the point of view of Kashmir Shaivism. <clears throat> so how are they to be reconciled? And what he comes up with is very curious. He says, the sadak stage, the spiritual seeker, you have to tell the spiritual seeker, you have to say that the world is an illusion. There is no other way because when a man forgets that he is Brahman, who is real, permanent, and omnipresent, and deludes himself into thinking that he is a body in the universe which is filled with bodies that are transitory, and labors under that delusion, you have to remind them that the world is unreal and a delusion. So, so beginning seekers, you have to tell them this world's an illusion, because he's so identified with the body and with objects. Why, he says, because his vision, which has forgotten its own self, is dwelling in the external material universe, and will not turn inwards to introspection unless you impress on him that all his external material universe is unreal. You have to say, this is all crap. Don't pay any attention to it. Turn within. So he's saying, so he's saying the, the kinder, the kindergarten is uh, Vedanta. That's for beginners. <laughs> right? Am I reading this wrong? When, once he realizes his own self, and also that there's nothing other than his own self, he'll come to look upon the whole universe as Brahman. He becomes a Shaivite then, when he goes to university. There is no universe without his self. So long as a man does not see his own self, which is the origin of all, but looks only at the external world as real and permanent, you have to tell him that all this external universe is an illusion. You cannot help it. Take, now, now he goes on. Take a paper. We see only the script, and nobody notices the paper on which the script is written. The paper is there whether the script on it is there or not. <clears throat> to those who look upon the script as real, you have to say, it's unreal, an illusion, since it rests upon the paper. The wise man looks upon both the paper and the script as one. So also with Brahman and the universe. It's a very good argument, Ramana, the great Vedantin, supporting the Shaivite point of view, isn't it? <clears throat> he says it's the same in the case of the cinema. This is an often used illustration. The screen is always there. The pictures come and go, but do not affect the screen. <clears throat> what does the screen care whether the pictures appear or disappear? The screen doesn't even care if it's... Uh, if it's um, uh, you know, Hamlet, or uh, what's a stupid show? Is there a stupid show, a particularly stupid show? No, not going to say. Or a stupid show. <laughs> Hamlet or stupid show. 
<coughs> it doesn't care. The screen doesn't care. The pictures depend upon the screen. Uh, but what use are they to it? They're no use to the screen. The man who looks only at the pictures on the screen and not the screen itself is troubled by the pains and pleasures that occur in the story. So they get caught in the story, just we do. We, we don't pay attention to the self, the substratum of everything, but we get caught in all the dramas of our minds, all the narratives that we tell ourselves, and we're miserable. But the man who views the screen realize that the images are all shadows and not something apart and distinct from the screen. So all, also with the world, it is all shadow plays, said Bhagwan. The questioner took leave and went away happy at the reply. <laughs> you like that? All right, here's a great one now. Uh, a devotee asked, is it a fact that somebody asked you to give him the tiger skin on which uh, Bhagwan was always sitting? And as it was being taken away, someone here prevented him from doing so? Bhagwan said with a smile, yes. That happened only after we came here. It was in 1924, about that time. This was about 25 years later, this was being told. So he's telling that. One sadhu came here to see me. I happened to be seated at the time on a tiger skin. We have the picture of the tiger skin. There's Ramana reclining on the tiger's skin. So don't get triggered. I'm sure that the tiger died of natural causes. I don't know, but it, many yogis would sit on tiger skins. Uh, so anyway, listen to the story. One sadhu came here to see me. I happened to be seated at the time on a tiger skin. He cast his eyes upon it, waiting for an opportunity when no one was with me. He said, Swami, what? He didn't say, why are you sitting on a tiger skin? No. He said, I want that tiger skin. Please give it to me. <clears throat> I told him I had no objection to give it. But if anyone saw him taking it away, they might not keep quiet. He said there was no one present at the time. <laughs> And then he would, he would manage to walk away with it before anyone could notice it. I said, all right, just as you like. I will get up, take it. <laughs> but if anyone sees you and stops you from going away with it, it will, I won't be responsible. So saying, I got up. He took the tiger skin, rolled it, this is Ramana talking, tied it and was going out with it when Dandapani Swami who was coming in, happened to notice it. Dandapani Swami is the big manager. He's a big, formidable dude, and I've read about him before. There's always somebody like that in an ashram. Um, you have the picture? Ah. Which one is Dandapani? Yeah, he is. He's there. He's a f formidable dude. <clears throat> so Dandapani, who was coming in, happened to notice it. He said, what, notice? what nonsense? Bhagavan sits on that tiger skin. You can't take it away. The sato protested, saying, I'm taking away with Bhagavan's permission. <laughs> Dandapani Swami, however, remonstrated. 
I looked that up, you know. How do you say it here? Remonstrated or remonstrated? Remonstrated? That's the English way. Remonstrated is the uh, American way, yeah. Okay, I'm just checking on you guys. <clears throat> it's the British Empire versus the American television. <laughs> that was for the Australian mind. <laughs> All right, so I'm caught between. I don't know how to pronounce it anymore myself. I will say, what do you say? Remonstrated. Okay, remonstrated. <clears throat> However, remonstrated, saying, was it proper for you to ask for it when Bhagavan was sitting on it? Is it proper for you to take it away? No, that cannot be allowed. Thereupon, both of them came to me for resolving the dispute. <laughs> Ramana says, I told Dandapani Swami that the sadhu pressed me to give him the tiger skin. And, <laughs> and so I gave it away, but that I had already warned him about others preventing him from taking it away. If they noticed it, I left it to them both to resolve the dispute as best they could. Dandapaniswami found fault with the sadhu, saying it was highly improper for him to have asked Bhagwan to get up from his seat and to have asked him to take away the tiger skin. Finally, Dandapaniswami prevented it from being taken away. <laughs> uh, Suri Nagama says, we were all very much amused. A devotee said, Bhagwan, You've replied to them both in a very funny way, which is true, very cute. Bhagavan said, what to do? Someone brings that tiger skin and requests me to sit on it. I accept his request. Someone else comes here and says, please get up, I want the tiger skin. So I get up. What do I lose? Dandapanaswami prevented that sadhu from taking it away. He was then in power. They could settle the score between themselves. Why should I bother? Devotee, so Bhagavan has no part uh, or lot in the matter? Bhagavan, no, I have no rights. <laughs> and I have no troubles. <laughs> Am I right? Do you love that story? It's just so beautiful. <laughs> what do you think about that? Dandapana Swami had to make sure he would give away, you know, give away his loincloth. So, we got to keep, keep a look at it. Let's meditate. <clears throat> and uh, Bhagwan's main teaching was to turn within and hold on to the self. Uh, just as Nasagadatta said, contemplate I am and take that in towards the experience of I am, Ramana said, called it the I-I. By that he meant the, the continuing feeling and thought of I. The I-I-I-I. So I-I-I-I. In other words, com contemplate pure subjectivity because the I is inward. So let's do that for 10 minutes. We'll turn within and focus on 
the in here, the interior, the subject, the I, and hold that I. And you don't have to strain to hold it because it's an ever-present experience. Just be aware of that feeling of I, that subject. And we'll meditate for 10 minutes. Once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. Satyanath Maharaj Ki Jai.